As our regular listeners will know, we're doing something a little bit different this summer. We're sharing episodes from other podcasts we've come to know and love. Today is a third and final episode from the Reach Out and Read podcast series. Reach Out and Read is an evidence-based primary care clinic delivered early childhood literacy promotion program that uses the regular well-child visits to facilitate discussion around literacy and encourage shared reading at home. Beyond the expected benefits to children and their families, research has found that Reach Out and Read boosts clinic morale, increases provider satisfaction, improves patient-clinician relationships, and promotes a literacy-rich environment. For more information, you can visit their website at reachoutandread.org. When we wrote the first article about moral injury in medicine, we were inundated with responses from healthcare workers. But we also heard from veterinarians, lawyers, teachers, and others. This episode of the Reach Out and Read podcast talks about politics, greed, and mismanagement that have made one profession incompatible with physical and mental health. Who are they talking about? Teachers. Alexandra Robbins is the author of the book, The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Most Vulnerable, Important Profession. It's a great look at the reality of America's teachers, what's working, what's not, and how we can fix it. It might give us some ideas for healthcare, too. Thank you to the Reach Out and Read podcast for letting us share this episode with you. They've got 80 episodes of Good Conversations, and you might want to head to their website to have a look at the others. But right now, let's have a listen to Dr. Navsaria's conversation with Alexandra Robbins. Politics, greed, and mismanagement have made this profession incompatible with physical and mental health. Unfortunately, if I don't give you any further context, you might not know what profession is being referenced in that quote. In this case, it's those who spend countless hours with children, helping shape and form their learning and the future of our society. Teachers. That quote is from Miguel a special education teacher, and a central figure in a new investigative book by our next guest, who is Alexandra Robbins. She is an award-winning investigative reporter and author of five New York Times bestselling books, including The Overachievers, The Nurses, and The Geeks Shall Inherit the Earth. Her latest book is The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Most Vulnerable, Important Profession. Alexandra has written for several publications, including the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Wall Street Journal, Vanity Fair, the Washington Post, Forbes, and the Atlantic, and she's appeared on multiple national television shows. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start off with um, your choice of subject. Clearly, you've done this sort of work with uh, a number of different groups from the titles of your other books. What led you to choose Teachers? I wanted to write a book that would kind of open the eyes of the public, show teachers they're not alone, help teachers find support and solidarity, and get teachers' voices amplified so that what they've been telling us for years will actually finally be heard, because it is critical that teachers' voices be heard now. In order to do that in a way that the public would find engaging and actually want to read, I had to do it in sort of a fast-paced fiction-style book that mm-hmm. could show the public what's really going on inside schools from the perspectives of our educators. Mm. 
what what was your premise when you started? What were you thinking you would find? And then did that change as you as you did this work? I, I usually go into this kind of work without uh, preconceived notions. The mm-hmm. book follows the stories and the opinions and the experiences of the people whom I interview. Uh, I basically go into it with the idea of I am delving into a subculture of people whose voices aren't heard or whose voices aren't dismissed, and I'm going to present their stories to the public in the most honest and interesting way I can. Um, Were there surprises? Yes, definitely there were surprises. Um, But I try not to go into it with preconceived notions. So tell us how you went about this. Um, I think most people listening to this are not journalists and uh, haven't done work like this. How do you even start? And then where, where did you go? And for how long? And how did you figure out who to, who to speak with? Well, I start by reaching out and trying to talk to as many teachers as possible. I ended up hearing from hundreds of educators across the country. And mm. I used quotes and interviews and stories and experiences of many of those people in the book. But I narrowed it down to three main characters whose stories I follow in depth in a way that readers can sort of get lost in like they would any uh, decent work of fiction. So for for a school year, I followed three excellent teachers, Penny, who was a math teacher in the South, Miguel, a special ed teacher out West, whom you mentioned before, and mm-hmm. Rebecca, an East Coast elementary school teacher. So readers could get immersed in their you know, fascinating behind-the-scenes stories and secrets. And they really do tell secrets, both personal and professional. And so they could understand teachers' perspectives. Um, I-, I chose them because I knew that readers would love Rebecca, Penny, and Miguel. Their stories are captivating and also relatable. For example, Penny was dealing with toxic workplace cliques, which is more common from women than you'd think in many professions, and an unsupportive administration. Uh, Miguel was fighting a school board that was discriminating against special ed students, Mm -hmm. teachers, and programs. And so he had to become an activist as a full-time job on top of his full-time job as an Mm -hmm. educator. And then there was Rebecca, who was great friends with colleagues. Her administration was very supportive, but she hadn't had time to date in five years because she put everything she had into teaching. So I followed Rebecca the year she vowed to try to work out um, a work-life balance and return to the dating pool. So their stories are important and relatable and also hopefully fun to read. (laughs) Yeah, it it certainly is. So uh, I I can confirm that for all of our listeners. Was there anything that you found along the way that was really surprising that you you just didn't expect at all yeah there are there were many things i think mm-hmm. you know some of the things that parents feel they can say to teachers and expect mm-hmm. from teachers just the level of outrageousness that got to surprised mm-hmm. me i'll give you some examples um mm-hmm. and these aren't even extreme if you talk to any teacher they're going to have heard some version mm-hmm. of something like this mm-hmm. michigan parents said at a conference to a high school english teacher we promised our son we would buy him a car if he gets all a's and b's your class is the only class he's getting a c in so it's your fault he can't get a car for his birthday 
I mean, that kind of, mm-hmm. like, it's so, it's so irrational. Um, mm-hmm. There was a teacher in Texas who a mother said to him that she expected him, when he delivered his lectures in class, he must simultaneously take handwritten notes in her daughter's notebook for the students. And she said, I've made my expectations clear with the principal. I mean, okay, (laughs) but there's still not realistic expectations. And, you know, of course, there's also the horrible things that parents are saying and the the Mm -hmm. violence and the nastiness, but those aren't as fun to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it it occurs to me, I mean, from your other book, which I have not had the pleasure of reading yet on nursing, there's so many commonalities between what we hear in healthcare. I'm a pediatrician, so... um, Look, most parents are lovely. They're wonderful. Yes. When they do act in perhaps not their best ways, it's uh, because they're scared or worried about their child and totally understand that. But yeah, every so often you do run into folks who uh, say things like the things you've described and you're just like, wow, this is just not realistic in any way, shape or form. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of similarities between teaching and nursing. They're both underappreciated, underpaid helping professions in which the workforce is dominated by women and the supervisory positions are dominated by men. And because that's sort of been a historical trend, the attitudes within and toward the workforce have not been ideal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So coming back to schools, would you say... Was there a dominant perception, I think, of of public schools? And then does the reality of what you found really match up with that? I think the public just generally doesn't really understand what goes on in public schools. People assume that, mm-hmm. that since they attended school as a student, that mm-hmm. they know what it's like to be in a classroom today. And the classroom sure. has changed so much just in the last 20 to 30 years that they, they, they can't possibly know what it's like to be a teacher, first of all, unless they've actually been a teacher. Mm-hmm. But also, even if they were teaching in the 90s and then retired, it's a completely different landscape right now. And part of that is because of the drive in the early 2000s that began high-stakes testing. That mm-hmm. led to a competitive test-based Mm-hmm. atmosphere in which teachers could be penalized based on their students' scores. And it wouldn't matter, for example, if a student had a stomach ache that day or was experiencing trauma at home or didn't have a home or was food insecure. Whatever the student's score was is how the teacher was judged. And so that started changing the way mm-hmm. the way teachers were viewed on things and judged and paid on things that were out of their control. Also, social media has changed the game in a big way. Mm-hmm. There's a group polarization effect going on by which, you know, someone could say one thing about what they think about teachers and then someone else will chime in. And then suddenly there's this coordinated effort to Mm -hmm. propagate Mm -hmm. negativity toward teachers. And that just, that kind of disrespect did not happen at this level in the 1990s. Yeah. 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 And it's extraordinary. Like it's, it's not like this just one thing that's that's out there that's a challenge right it's almost so many different streams of things right. that are kind of coming together to create this crisis Yes, that's exactly right. And, you know, you have districts are piling more and more responsibilities on teachers without paying them for that overtime and without Mm -hmm. providing them the planning periods during the school day to get their own job done, let alone the jobs that administrators are sort of 
punting to them. Um, students are more disruptive now than they were before the pandemic. And just one disruptive student can really affect an mm -hmm. entire class. And at the same time as all of that, the teacher pay gap has hit a record high. U.S. Mm -hmm. educators are paid about 24% less than mm -hmm. professionals with similar education and experience. So it's no wonder that so many teachers are fleeing the profession. Yeah, and also just uh, the, the lack of adequate resources. I mean, the number of times, I think I lost count, uh, where you said, you know, a teacher was paying for re for materials. Yep, that's right. The number of times, yeah, they were paying for materials out of their own pocket over and over and over again it was just extraordinary. 94% of U.S. teachers pay for their own classroom supplies they spend about an average of $500 a year. Uh, Penny, that mm -hmm. math teacher I followed in the mm -hmm. South, one year she spent $2,000 of her own money. And mm -hmm. th that's a significant chunk. She was an 18-year right. teaching veteran whose salary was $47,000 a year. So $2,000 mm -hmm. on top of that to pay for her school supplies, uh, mm -hmm. that's a big chunk of $47,000. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So early on in the book, you you made a comment that this it was uh, I. I knew it was coming in a sense, but it was still startling. Uh, you said that the phrase "teacher shortage" is is misleading. Uh, can you say more about why you said that? Sure. There's not a teacher shortage. That's that's the phrase that everybody uses. But I think uh -huh. that just helps perpetuate this idea that we should blame teachers for all the problems in the school system, because that makes it seem like, oh, well, they're not stepping up. That's not true at all. There are plenty of potential qualified and aspiring teachers out there. There is a shortage of teaching jobs that adequately treat compensate mm -hmm. and respect skilled, trained professionals such that they would want to be teachers in the first place. So that's not a shortage of teachers. It's the job mm -hmm. that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like we're acting like it's unreasonable for people to ask for humane working conditions. Exactly. <laughs> sure. So to some of the things that you just touched on, I want to dig into a few of them a bit, bit more. At one point, you, you talked about how in, uh, uh, I'll just quote here, in just the first six weeks of 2022, state legislatures introduced more than 100 bills aimed at censoring classroom discussions of race, racism, gender, LGBTQ plus issues, and American history, measures akin to what free speech advocacy organization PEN America called educational gag orders. It seems like this is becoming more and more and more of uh, a reality for educators and certainly 2023 seems to be no different. Oh no, it's 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 getting worse. Uh, since mm -hmm. 2021, hundreds of parent and community groups have formed to urge bans of books featuring characters who are LGBTQ or characters of color or that include issues about race or LGBTQ mm -hmm. identities or gender identities or racism. And these groups associate themselves with politicians who are also pushing to censor teaching and classroom discussions and school materials regarding race, racism, gender, uh, LGBTQ issues, racism in American history. Uh, politicians have galvanized these parents by packaging these measures as parents' rights. But, uh, but come on, which parents are we talking about? Uh, the bigotry panders to only a certain small subset of parents who are aggressive mm, sure. and loud and on the fringe. However, and this is where social media plays into it, they are able mm -hmm. to coordinate on social media. And so that's why we're seeing, in my opinion, more of this than we did in the past.
Mm, sure. Yeah. That has that amplification and coordination effect that gives a outsized voice. Yes. Yeah. To those uh, often very minority opinions. I was also, we noted that uh, you're, uh, you also mentioned people who don't fall into the traditional teacher category, but are just uh, as important, uh, school librarians. You mentioned how schools had lost almost uh, 20% full-time librarians, 45% of library support staff positions since 2000, and uh, that a lot of K-12 schools don't have full-time librarians or any at all, full-time or part-time, and so on. Uh, we have a lot of librarians who listen to this podcast, and uh, I'm sure they're feeling heard right now in terms of uh, what's been happening to their school colleagues. Uh, yeah, exactly. Librarians are central to student success, uh, yet 40% of K-12 schools don't have a full-time librarian. Nearly a third of school districts don't have any librarians at all. We need more librarians. And mm -hmm. it's not just about the book ban issues. Students mm -hmm. are more likely mm -hmm. to graduate, to master academic standards, and to score higher on tests if their school has a full-time qualified librarian. And, and studies show mm -hmm. it's not the library. If a school has mm -hmm. a library, but not a full-time librarian, you don't see that closing of the achievement gap. You need mm -hmm. a full-time qualified librarian. Um, school librarians are teachers who instruct mm -hmm. students and train other teachers in education technology and grade-level resources. They do a lot of their actual library work on collection, development, cataloging, mm -hmm. and family mm -hmm. outreach unpaid and outside of school hours because during the school day, they're working on uh, teaching and instruction. They, they do so much more than people realize. And that's why I call them the most underestimated teacher in the school. Mm, yeah, exactly. It's uh, not just about the materials, right? It's about having someone there to assist students and help coach and model how they, they go searching for the information they want. Yeah, and it's even it's it's not just information. A librarian will pair a student with a mm -hmm. book that represents them, mm -hmm. so they can see themselves in a book. Mm -hmm. uh, librarians are so good at matching people with literature that's going mm -hmm. to spark an interest or make them feel validated or help them mm -hmm. to pursue a passion. It's they're mm -hmm. really they're so central to schools. Yeah, good old readers' advisory. So. <laughs> So speaking of the physical environments moving from libraries to the buildings as a whole, your descriptions of some of the school physical plant was just um, incredible, right? Mold, no heat, uh, no air conditioning or broken AC. And then that awful moment early in the book where teachers were saying, well, we'd like to leave the classroom doors open so that air could circulate better, particularly thinking about COVID and, and all that. But, oh, no, no, we have an automatic locking system that will help mitigate active shooter situations. It, it almost felt like it enca encapsulated about half of what was wrong in that one anecdote. <laughs> yeah, because teachers were not teachers were not able to open their doors to help circulate air during the pandemic in order to uh, lessen the chances that there would be COVID in the classroom because they had to keep the doors locked in case of an active shooter. I mean, talk mm -hmm. about teachers having to bear all the weight of society's failures. Yeah, yeah, so much there. Speaking of COVID, uh, you you acknowledged it, but you, you chose not to focus on it extensively. Can you discuss for a few moments why? 
Sure. I felt that while COVID is an interesting point in the history of the profession, mm-hmm. the problems that we're seeing in schools today did not start during the COVID era and were not caused by the pandemic. Teachers have been telling us about these problems in schools for years. The pandemic just sort of exacerbated the problems from urgent to crisis level and laid them bare for all to see. So I felt that talking about COVID throughout the book would do a disservice to teachers because I don't want people to think that, oh, well, once the pandemic's over, then it'll go back to air quotes, Mm -hmm. normal, and teachers will be fine again. No, we had had things we had to address in the education system before the pandemic, and those still need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, based on your observations, are we are we seeing true learning loss or are we seeing kids that are just being hampered by these additional outside stressors? Um, there's, there's so much debate about this right now. What are your observations? I mean, the world went through a global pandemic. I don't mm-hmm. think there were a lot of deaths, a lot of sicknesses, a lot of lost wages. I mean, you you can't expect anybody to go through that completely mm-hmm. unscathed. So mm-hmm. when we talk about learning loss, you know, okay, we can fix that. So I think when people are focusing on learning loss during the pandemic, it's sort of another way that they're trying to put the blame on schools and teachers. Everybody lost something during the mm-hmm. pandemic. So mm-hmm. to then hone in on, on learning loss in schools I, I think I think it's unnecessary. Mm, sure, yeah, we did a um, a show on this podcast. <laughs> feels like forever ago now, but it was uh, in preparation for the start of the fall uh, teaching, and uh, we interviewed a few teachers. And uniformly, their comment was, "Don't worry about the learning loss. Focus on are the kids okay? Yes, right. Just yeah." And uh, that message came through loud and clear from them. Yes, hundred yeah. percent. You can catch yeah. up on the learning, but but let's let's focus on making sure everybody's okay because what happened was traumatic. Mm, sure. So we recently did a show on moral injury in healthcare. You know, this in this movement to talk about uh, to take the word burnout and recognize that burnout is a thing, but then there's a very similar related kind of concept of moral injury where you know what you're in that case, patient, but in this case, students, what they need to be successful, but you can't give it to them for whatever reason, lack of resources, limitations that are placed on you, uh, whatever the case may be. And that feeling of distress about not being able to follow through is what ultimately kind of wears people down. Do you think we're looking at that kind of phenomenon in teachers? Yeah, I actually haven't heard the phrase moral injury before um, used in that way, and I and I really like it. It's much better than the phrase teacher burnout. I, you know, teacher burnout is, is a popular phrase that describes exhaustion or stress or depression from overwork, but it's totally misleading. This, again, plays into, like, teacher shortage. It plays into the whole educational narrative of blaming teachers. If we break it down, experts say teacher burnout is caused by insufficient workplace support and resources, 
But instead of fixing these issues, like you would think a typical workplace would do, school systems instead say that teachers are burnt out, they should do a better job of self-care. Again, I'm doing my crazy air quotes here. Um, as if the <laughs> burden is on the teachers to somehow relieve yeah. the stress caused by a job that's actually impossible to do during their paid contracted hours. So the phrase teacher burnout blames teachers for not yep. being able to cope when they are set up to, to fail in the first place. And that's why I say, instead of mm -hmm. saying teachers have the highest burnout levels, we should instead be saying, no, school systems are the employers that are the worst at providing employees with necessary supports and resources. One way to refer to what teachers are going through is um, teacher demoralization, because that, that sort mm -hmm. of connotes that they are being demoralized by external factors that have nothing to do with some sort of individual deficiency. Mm -hmm. I like the way you phrased it too. I like moral injury because they are being hurt by external forces and they are demoralized because they can't provide for the students as they would want to, just like in, in your mm -hmm. scenario, healthcare providers aren't allowed to provide for their patients as they would want to. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's, and that's exactly the thing is that burnout has this implication, as you said, of the, the problem is centered in the, in the individual, right? If you were more resilient, then it would be fine. You right. wouldn't be burned out. Or if you, you know, that this is a problem of uh, insufficient yoga or whatever you know, <laughs> trend, trendy thing, yes, that they're doing. And whereas moral injury actually says, no, this injury was done to you by a system that that is is uh, not addressing your needs to be able to do the right thing here. Yeah, it's a good phrase. Yeah, yeah. So now that we've thoroughly depressed all of our listeners, <laughs> <laughs> what are what are the solutions to all this? I mean, I th I think are there solutions that to you are like okay, this is really clear. This is what needs to happen, and then why aren't we doing those solutions? Yeah, to fix the education system, we need to focus on the teachers. Teachers' mm -hmm. working conditions are children's learning conditions. If mm -hmm. you fix the HVAC system so there's proper heat and proper air conditioning, teachers have better working conditions, yes, but also students are going to be more comfortable in the classroom. They're going to do better on standardized tests. So the things that teachers are asking for aren't necessarily off for them, they're thinking of the students and the learning environment. Um, we need to have pro-teacher voices coordinating just like that negative fringe is to get messages of positivity toward teachers and to get support toward teachers in the national dialogue. We should be lobbying for smaller classes and larger paychecks. And that's not, I'm not trying to be glib with the paychecks. Teachers, <laughs> yes, deserve far more money than they get. But also studies show that students' math and English scores are significantly higher in districts that pay teachers higher base salaries. We need to show our trust to teachers, actually say in front of kids, I trust your teacher, you know, model that respect mm. and appreciation. And that's going to improve students' experiences too. When you see someone disparage teachers on social media, shut it down immediately. We need louder pro-teacher voices. Mm -hmm. And also pay attention to what school boards and superintendents are doing. Ask teachers how they feel about it, and then right. testify, email, or start petitions supporting the teacher's stance. Teachers know better than anyone else what is best for the classroom. So we mm -hmm. need to follow mm -hmm. their lead and support what they are telling us needs to happen in schools. 
Sure, sure. And and I want to pick up on something you just said there about saying, I support your teacher or, or whatnot. Are there other things parents can do that that uh, while we're waiting for the advocacy to, to take hold and to work, are there things parents can do that would be supportive? Oh, sure. In, a, in addition to just a general level of, of respect and appreciation, ask what supplies teachers need and then either buy them or fundraise for them or collect them from friends and neighbors to donate, you know, post on your local listserv and say, what did I just do? A, a teacher just put out a call for tissues. Well, okay. So it's easy to get boxes of tissues. So you collect boxes of tissues and you deliver it to the classroom or a classroom I was in the other day was almost out of whiteboard markers. Okay. So on your neighborhood listserv, post and say, hey, does anyone have uh, whiteboard markers? I'll come and collect them. And, you, you know, you, if you get 30 whiteboard markers and give it to a classroom, they're good for another at least couple weeks, even if they're not brand new. So that's one thing that parents can do. Also, schedule send school emails to arrive during school hours instead of mm. when you think about it at, you know, two in the morning. Um, it's just mm. common courtesy. And also that way, if you're upset or angry, schedule sending your words will give you some time to cool off and mm. maybe take those words back. Don't contact teachers unnecessarily some things students can advocate for for themselves. Right. Uh, what else? If your child needs a recommendation letter, ask the teacher before summer break. Don't wait until <laughs> fall. Pro tip. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, just just think about things you can do to help out once in a while. It doesn't have to cost any money. You know, offer to cut math materials or, you know, yesterday, um, since I had some extra time when, when I was subbing, I stapled packets for the rest of the school year. So all of the math packets were ready to go for the students, you know, application problems and problem sets and all that. And so the teacher doesn't have to do that for the rest of the school year. Or if you do have a little bit to spare, you know, deliver bagels to the staff lounge. Teachers get mm. excited when there's some <laughs> treat at the beginning of the day. There's so many things just to show these even small gestures of appreciation um, that can make a teacher day. Sure, sure. And and actually, I wanted to close with, you just referenced it here, you uh, became a substitute teacher and you were substitute teaching just uh, before you showed up for our interview here uh, today. What led you to that decision and uh, what insight did it give you that you might not have otherwise managed to achieve? Oh, it gave me so much, So it gave me so many insights. Um, I actually signed up Pre-pandemic, there was an article that said there was a nearby district that was really low on subs. And I hadn't heard that that wasn't something that people who were non-educators knew about back then. Mm -hmm. And so I asked local teachers and admins and they said, yeah, it's really a problem. Please sign up. So, okay. So I figured, okay, I, I can sign up and I can substitute once every couple of weeks. But it turned out to be so rewarding both to work with the students and to work with the teachers. Teachers are just, they're just such awesome people that I ended up subbing much more often. Last year, last school year, I ended up subbing um, nearly an entire semester as a long-term wow. sub as a full-time <laughs> third grade teacher. For the uh -huh. whole school year, I subbed more than 150 out of 180 days. And I think while it gave me so many insights and, and, and gave me a lot of depth and understanding as to what teachers have been telling me in interviews. I think what sticks with me the most, and even today, like today I, I taught second grade, just the joy that being in the classroom can give you and the, the feeling of a meaningful reward just for, you know, 
good classroom management or, you know, I, I walked in today and they called me in as an emergency, but I had a doctor appointment already in the morning. So I was a little late. And when I walked in, the person who was covering the class was like, I can't do this anymore. I got to get out of here. I don't even want to talk to them. Like they're all yours. Okay. So, so I come in and, um, and to have them, you know, within a couple hours, like sitting quiet as a man, you know, they're all on task and they're all doing their work and they're happy. Mm -hmm. And like Mm -hmm. the feeling of the feeling of inner success I got from that, Mm. I was realizing it's, it's more than it's, it's, it's a more powerful Mm. and more meaningful feeling than when I Mm -hmm. have a, I don't know, a successful piece of writing published. Mm. It's just, it meant, it means so much more to me. And so I understand why teachers stay in the profession, despite Mm -hmm. all the challenges that we talked about, because the joy from the connections that you make with students and staff and the feelings that you get when you're able to sort of mutually learn together and impart knowledge and get a student to understand Mm -hmm. a a concept or a connection between two different things. It's so powerful and so motivating. Yeah. Your, your joy and your devotion, uh, just shine through just in how you're talking about this so thank you thank you so much for for that insight and and for writing this book um i'm uh sure it'll be uh appreciated by so many out there and uh let's hope that it leads to some real lasting meaningful change i hope so thank you thank you for having me welcome to today's 33rd page or something extra for you our listeners In thinking about our conversation with our guest today and about teachers, I came across a letter written in 2007 by the now-departed author Pat Conroy, who wrote uh, The Prince of Tides, among other books. Let me read you some excerpts from this letter that he wrote. I've enjoyed a lifetime love affair with English teachers, just like the ones who are being abused in Charleston, West Virginia today. My English teachers pushed me to be smart and inquisitive, and they taught me the great books of the world with passion and cunning and love. Like your English teachers, they didn't have any money either, but they lived in the bright fires of their imaginations, and they taught because they were born to teach the prettiest language in the world. I have yet to meet an English teacher who has signed a book to damage a kid. They take an unutterable joy in opening up the known world to their students, but they are dishonored and unpraised because of the scandalous paychecks they receive. In my travels around this country, I have discovered that America hates its teachers, and I could not tell you why. Charleston, West Virginia is showing clear signs of really hurting theirs, and I would be cautious about the word getting out. In 1961, I entered the classroom as a great Eugene Norris, who set about in a thousand ways to change my life. It was the year I read The Catcher in the Rye, under Jean's careful tutelage, and I adore that book to this very day. Later, a parent complained to the school board, and Jean Norris was called before the board to defend his teaching of this book. He asked me to write an essay describing the book's galvanic effect on me, which I did. But Jean's defense of The Catcher in the Rye was so brilliant and convincing in its sheer power that it carried the day. I stayed close to Jean Norris till the day he died. I delivered a eulogy at his memorial service and was one of the executors of his will. Few in the world have ever loved English teachers as I have, 
and I loathe it when they are bullied by know-nothing parents or cowardly school boards. The world of literature has everything in it, and it refuses to leave anything out. I have read like a man on fire my whole life because of the genius of English teachers who touched me with the dazzling beauty of language. Because of them, I rode with Don Quixote and danced with Anna Karina in a ball in St. Petersburg and lassoed a steer in Lonesome Dove and had nightmares about slavery and Beloved and walked the streets of Dublin in Ulysses and made up a hundred stories in the Arabian Nights and saw my mother killed by a baseball in a prayer for Owen Meany. I've been in 10,000 cities and I've introduced myself to a hundred thousand strangers in my exuberant reading career, all because I listened to my fabulous English teachers and soaked up every single thing those magnificent men and women had to give. I cherish and praise them and thank them for finding me when I was a boy and presenting me with the precious gift of the English language. Thank you, teachers. And that's today's 33rd pitch. You've been listening to the Reach Out and Read podcast. Reach Out and Read is a nonprofit organization that is the authoritative national voice for the positive effects of reading daily and supports, coaches, and celebrates engaging in those language-rich activities with young children. We're continually inspired by stories that encourage language, literacy, and early relational health. Visit us at reachoutandread.org slash podcast to find out more, and don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Your feedback helps grow our podcast community and tells others that this podcast is worth listening to. Our show is a production of Reach Out and Read. Our producer is Jill Ruby. Jen Teagan is our National Director of Marketing and Communications. Thank you to Boise Paper for making a difference in local communities like ours and for sponsorship of our podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Depesh Navsarya. I look forward to spending time with you soon. And remember, books build better brains.